This is Caden from Hyrax. You are listening to Metal Mayhem, R-O-C. Turn it up loud and blast your eardrums. Live from the Metal Mayhem Studios in Rochester, New York. We are gold. And heard around the world by metalheads just like you. This is Metal Mayhem ROC. Heavy metal music. Your weekly dose of metal music, interviews, album reviews, news, and more. Want to be part of the show? Send us a message through our website, MetalMayhemROC.com. Or hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Search Metal Mayhem ROC. It's getting nice and heavy. Now, welcome our hosts, John the Vernomatic Verno and Metal Forever Mark. Good evening, everybody. We're getting heavy up here in the Metal Mayhem ROC studios. I'm the Vernomatic, and welcome to another edition of Metal Mayhem ROC. As usual, you could find the podcast every Thursday night, 8 p.m. on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, iTunes, and our number one location, podbean.com. We thank you for listening, and as always... Please subscribe to the podcast. Metal Forever Mark, he's putting together content for a few episodes that's coming up. He'll be back in the saddle before year's end. Tonight's episode, we have a chance to talk with Caton from the 80s thrash band Hyrax. Now, Hyrax was one of those bands that came up through the ranks with early Metallica, Slayer, Dark Angel. Those were the bands that started in Los Angeles originally that made their way up to the Bay Area in San Francisco that were pivotal in the early development of that early thrash scene. Well, Caton shares with us some of those stories from back in the day, how the band really progressed, and what the band is up to in 2020. Show producer Mike Anthony had a chance to join us Mike was a big Hyrax fan, and this was on his bucket list, and he really helped with uh, putting this episode together, so we give him a tip of the hat, and he definitely earned his metal badges as being part of the Metal Mayhem ROC team. So, let's get to it. From Hyrax, Caton, Metal Mayhem ROC. Hail yon rising, thou to your knees, So we have on the line tonight, direct from California, Caton from Hyrax. Hey, man, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, guys. I'd like to introduce you to Mike. He's one of my show producers. He's going to be joining our discussion tonight. Hey, Mike, what's happening, brother? Oh, just chilling up here in 24 degrees. You guys are amazing. You guys are like badasses to even live in that weather. I live in California, so there's a big difference. <laughs> hey, uh, <laughs> it, may, it makes the metal even harder. So I, I hear you. So uh, what we really want to do tonight is uh, explore the history of Hyrax share some stories from the last 30, 35 years, and uh, touch on what the band's up to in 2020 and moving forward. How does that sound? Sounds great. Uh, well, you know, obviously we were caught off guard with this whole uh, pandemic COVID-19 thing. So we were scheduled to go. We would have been in uh, Australia 
in April. I mean, that's already passed, but that shows you how long everything's been shut down. Like the last tour we had planned was um, Australia. Before that, we played with Mr. Bungle here in Los Angeles, and it was insane. Uh, they did like three nights, and they contacted us personally, which was really cool. Typical Hyrax story is we got an a email, and I saw it, and I thought it wasn't real because it just, it just seemed really far-fetched. Like when we started out back in 84, we used to play in the Bay Area a lot, and there was this young kid that used to come to our shows, and he'd be there fucking like hours before we would even be playing. We'd be loading into the venue. And there's this same kid every time we played in the Bay Area. So years later, I'm going through my letters, you know, fan mail, which is nowadays you don't hear about that, but letters that were sent by, you know, through the mail. And I was going through a bunch of old mail, and I found these letters from this kid named Mike Patton. So like 30-something years later, Mike Patton, the singer for Faith No More, Mr. Bungle, he's doing some shows in L.A. with Dave Lombardo on drums and um, what's his name? Uh, that that kid from New York. Oh, yeah, Scott Ian. Scott Ian. So, yeah, Scott Ian's on guitar. So they offer us to play with him. And, and first, I don't write back to the email because I think it's fake. And my wife, who's been the savior, really, of the band, she's like, dude, respond to that email. It's probably real. You just don't, you know, because I don't think like that. Anyway, so, so we write back, and it is Mr. Bunkle, and they're asking us to play in L.A. So we do the sold-out show. Everything's going great, and we're getting ready to go to, to Australia for, like, seven. I think it was actually eight shows because they added a couple more for us in DRI down in Australia. So that was right before the pandemic hit. And then when it hit, it basically erased everything for most bands probably till 2000, late 2001, if not 2002. I think it's going to be 2002. That's basically where we're at with Hot Racks right now, except for me and the guitar player have started working on the next record because obviously we have a lot of time on our hands. And I'm working on a book, the first book for Hot Racks ever written. And I got an offer from a book company from Italy, and I was like, I don't know if I want to do this. And again, my wife's like, are you crazy? Just do the book. So basically working on a book right now and compiling a lot of stuff from like the early 80s up until now, from like when we started out with Metallica and Slayer here in Los Angeles. And uh, the, the history is going to be all the way up until now. So it's going to have a lot of crazy stories about back when we used to hang out in Huntington Beach with Dave Mustaine and, you know, partying with the guys in Metallica back when they they first started out. So it's like, I feel really obligated to do this book because there's a lot of pieces that are missing that people don't know about those early days, you know, like before Metallica moved to the Bay area. And then when us and basically it was, there were four bands basically fighting it out for thrash metal and down in Los Angeles and Orange County it was us and dark angel and Slayer. Obviously they were starting to take off and Metallica had already took off. So I mean, that's kind of the, the whole premise of the starting of the band was like just that whole infinite stage of thrash metal and i think a lot of people don't know about the southern california part they really know a lot more about the bay area part but how they really do their cousins and and people don't really really realize that la and san francisco no matter what the differences are we really are like cousins and brothers and sisters it's crazy this is a great segue into this week's listeners question this is from the Cranker from San Diego. 
ask him about Rampage Radio and Ron Quintana. <laughs> uh, it's a three-parter. It's a three-parter. Uh, they want they want all the dirt. Yeah. That's great. Ask him if he still keeps in touch with either Greg Pam or Zary. And wow. and what's the scene and what's the backstory on Fender's Ballroom in Long Beach? Thanks wow. for the music. The Cranker, San Diego, California. The Cranker is a badass. Well, to ask those questions, they would really have to, you know, be a fan and, and also know that that stuff because it's still a lot of stuff that hasn't been uncovered. Basically, Fender's Ballroom was the, the CBGBs or the Ruthie's Inn of the, not really Los Angeles. It was in Long Beach. So it was kind of even cooler because it wasn't in the Hollywood scene. Because the Hollywood scene was still where they weren't allowing a lot of the shit that Orange County or Long Beach would allow. So a lot of us were playing in the those suburban cities outside of Hollywood just because we were banned from L.A. Like, we they, they were scared of our shit up there. Like, they didn't like sta- slam dancing, stage diving. That was all banned. The people, they have a really short attention span, but people don't realize that slam dancing and stage diving was banned and outlawed in this area in the very early days, big time. Like you, we, we were actually, some clubs wouldn't even allow us to play there. So that for years we didn't play places up on the sunset strip. I mean, that was later. People don't realize it was either the Valley, which was a place called the country club, which had massive, amazing shows. Everybody from loudness to merciful fate, you know, us, dark angel, Megadeth, we all played there. Metallica on the first tour. So that was the country club. And then in Long Beach, there was a place called Fender's Ballroom. And this place was a square block of a room, basically a cement room. So they didn't care what the hell they put in there. I mean, you could have the craziest shows there and there, and the venue would still be standing. So Fender's Ballroom was the craziest venue. And the first time we played there, it was us, uh, Megadeth, and Exciter. And that show was sold out, and it was insane. Like from the first song, it was like the fucking place exploded. And uh, that was like even we were just like we I don't even think we had a record out yet and it was still that crazy. I mean it was like a mania. I'm not, I'm not even kidding you. The the beginning days of that stuff it was mania. Like you know everybody had their brand new tennis shoes on and high tops and denim jackets and their their haircuts. You know it was just unbelievable time to be a part of it. And then that was one of the reasons we started going to the Bay Area from Los Angeles was because. There wasn't that many clubs for us to play down here, but once we got to the Bay Area, it was a, a lot more clubs that could put up with that kind of shit. And you know, the Ruthie's Inn was another place that was a big part of that. So, okay, so I got the Fender's Ballroom part covered. There was another part of that question. I think it was a two-part, a uh, three-parter. But the second one, um, the Record Vault, and do you the... st- still keep in touch with Greg, Pam, or Zary? Who are those Not, people? Uh, yeah, a lot of those guys. You know the. Either they're still around and we just haven't talked in many years or some of them. That was what was great about the heavy metal and thrash metal scene. Like you were either in it for life, which obviously I am. And, you know, there's a lot of people that were like that. But then there are a lot of people that chose different paths or they they started liking different music. Or you just haven't seen them in years. Because like now the Bay Area is eight hours away, which is different when you're older. When you're younger, eight hours away is like four hours, two hours, you know, like. It, the time doesn't seem that long. So back in those days, we were driving back and forth from here to the Bay Area quite a bit. And that's the reason we were going up there for the gigs. And also there was a place called the Record Vault. 
So we'd go to the record vault, and from there we would go to the uh, KUSF radio, which was Rampage Radio. We would be up all night long, uh, some of us on some crazy shit, and some of us just drinking like mad, you know? So, like, very young kids fueled by alcohol and whatever else, hanging out with Ron Quintana at Rampage Radio, blasting music that had never been played on the radio before. It was a very exciting time. And we would go into this this radio station with Ron Quintana and just take over. Like, But that was very important. That, that night, that night, I should say early, late night, early morning kind of a radio show was so important back then for getting that music out. And people were making tapes of it. They were taping those shows. So, and then a lot of those tapes would end up in the record vault. So you could go to the record vault, which was kind of like a distribution center. I mean, the last thing I bought from that store was a Metallica live tape from them on the last tour with Cliff, you know? So like that store had like, it was almost like the internet. It had still live recordings before anybody else would have it. Kate and Mike here. So yeah. we're, we're sitting down with Kate and of Hyrax. I wanted to ask you, you know, I remember here in Rochester, it must in the early eighties, I saw the Ramones. I was actually bar backing at a club and I never would have been at a live show like this. I never would have hit my radar, but yeah. I remember seeing it and I saw this Mohawk kid and he had this motorhead patch on the back of his jacket, and I was like, what? Punk rockers yeah. like metal, too? No fucking way. This is great. Yeah. And Crossover, told- man. Yeah, that totally opened up the door for me. Did you, ever, yeah. did you ever have that, like, early on experience where you realized, hey, this punk rock can can jive with metal, too? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. That's an excellent question. That kind of, for people that weren't there or don't, you know, that want to learn the history, it's kind of, that's where music completely changed. And for me, it was actually 1978 because I went to a place called the Starwood in Hollywood. And there was this band called Yesterday and Today, which they changed their name to YMT. But they were called Yesterday and Today. And I saw them in 78. And I remember their roadies wearing Ramones t-shirts and stuff like that. And I was like, and I love those, both those bands, but I was like, that's awesome that other people were starting to feel the same way I was because I, I mean, I get it. Some people hated punk, and I get some people hated metal. But to me, they always had a they just again like kind of like the Bay Area meets Los Angeles. Their sister and brother, kind of like dysfunctional family. But the the energy to me is the same. It really is like yeah, the talent's different, and how you apply the talent's one thing. But the energy between punk and metal, that's one of the reasons High Rats was a crossover band because we loved both styles of music. We after a while, we were like, we're not going to say we hate one or the other or love one or the other more. We love all music, but those two were big to us. So, yeah, the crossover thing for me was basically 78 when I saw bands like the Moans and the Motorhead t-shirts being worn by both sides. They were, rockers were wearing them. Even some of the glam people were wearing them, especially if they were in the bands like Hanoi Rocks. A lot of them like Motorhead and, you know, in Ramones. So it's like, after a while, it became a melting pot, and I think that's kind of like what bands like us and DRI and other crossover bands, The Accused, that's kind of that thing that happened where it, it just started to come together. I mean, even if you look at SOD, that's a, a total example of that same thing where everything started to come together. Talking about some of the early days when uh, 
raging violence came out, you know, for me, that, <laughs> that was a home run, man. And it, what yeah, was, it was what, crazy. You were talking about a radio show. Uh, Vernon Maddock here ran a radio show, and he gave my best friend, Mike Calabrese, a copy of it. And we, was, we brought that home, and we dropped the needle, and we just shit right then and there. We're like, oh, what did we just get our hands on? So That's awesome. And, uh, yeah, that's what, that's what it was all about, man. Like, I think a lot of us were kind of inspired, like, by each other. Like, you know, when we were coming up, basically our direct rivals were Dark Angel, and that's a good one to have. Like, you know, it's one thing to have a band that is good, but they were great. So it was kind of cool to have another band that we were kind of, playing gigs with we loved each other and actually love each other even more now that we're older but back then there was also the competition thing so that was a part of it too but you know it just it was a good thing to be around bands like that and i think that's directly what made us want to just be a better band was you know the competition aspect but also having the mutual respect for each other and like all these things mattered, whether it was the the fanzines or the radios, you know, shows where people turned each other on to stuff. And I and I appreciate hearing the stories because that's what keeps me still even doing this. It's always for me, seriously, man. It's always been about the fans. It's I don't think, see how you can be in this style of music when I, it's also about a, a a movement. You know, it's about a, a group of people, which people don't realize: thrash metal, heavy metal, whatever you want to call it crossover is huge worldwide like it might in the u.s it's probably believe it or not not the strongest compared to outside of the u.s but it's still pretty good but i'm just saying worldwide the the family is huge so that's one of the reasons i'm still doing it is because of the fans like i get letters still to this day and every day of my life where there's people that basically make me they inspire me to keep doing this stuff you know like before you guys before this interview today, I got a call from uh, Kirk from C- Crowbar, and he's another one of those guys that just he blows me away because he's so humble, but he was also an early thrash metal guy, so they know their stuff. And just that these records actually ended up, whether you sold 1,000 or 15,000 or 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 records, it's amazing the impact that these records had. Oh, definitely, definitely. Hey, there's always this question I've been dying to ask you my whole life is, uh, you know, it Hate, Fear, and Power, the tune Blind Faith, that whistle-scratching before before the tune, who came up with that? Dude, you're a badass to even be asking these questions. Jeez. Um, <laughs> that's a good one. Okay, well, Bill Matoyer, we'd worked with him before on the first album. Like, when we first went in, Brian Slagle signed us and, and he knew what he was doing because he kind of was one of those dudes that was collecting tapes and, and keeping his ear to the ground. And he got a tape of us from playing at this place called Radio City, which was an early venue that we used to play in Orange County. And so he sent us a, a letter saying he wanted to do, do at least one song to start. You know, So we did Bombs of Death for the uh, Metal Massacre 666 compilation. And that whole experience is what made everything explode. Like we did this recording with Matoyer and before we knew it, there were bikers showing up to our houses, like asking to buy tapes and shit. It was bizarre. Like I'm a young kid and I've got dudes that are older than me riding up to my house on motorcycles, asking to buy demos and shit. So once we got with Matoyer, he perfected the sound. And by the time we did the second record, which we were kind of pressured into doing, not that that was a bad thing, it's just that we 
weren't a professional band in the beginning. You know, we started out as just a bunch of thrash metal kids in a garage. And so the second record, they're like, you guys need a new new product. We're like, what the fuck is product, man? Like, we're, we play to have fun and drink beer. And they're like, well, you need a new record. So we went in with Matoyer, and we didn't have a ton of music. So we're like, well, we'll do a mini album. Because back in those days, also, there were mini albums. Slayer had done Haunting the Chapel. So we were like, we'll do Hate, Fear, and Power. And when we were recording it, we were getting done with it, and we were trying to think of different ideas, and we thought it was funny about how religious people were, you know, burning records, and this, I mean, they don't do it like they used to back in the day. They fucking had these big things where they'd burn records, and, uh, because they thought it was evil, so they were talking about backmasking, and we were like, that's pretty funny, so Matoria goes, what do you think of this? Because I was like, we should probably throw some of that shit on there just for those people. So Victoria's like, well, check this out. And he went over to the reels. And this is old school reels. I mean, it's, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. And this is a great question because I've never answered this. But he was like working on the reels and moving them back and forth and looking over at me kind of like smiling like the devil. And I'm like, perfect. So it was Matoya just going over to the reels and, and whipping them around back and forth. And talking about, you know, how he could edit it and mix it up and make it sound even crazy. I'm like, no, that's just leave it exactly like that. So that's basically Matoyer messing with the reels in the studio. That's great. I, I'm telling you, I, that's why I went to the bullpen and brought out Mike for this interview. <laughs> He's, a fucking... He's asking qua- crazy shit because nobody even has ever asked me that question. But that's that's called attention to detail to even recognize it. I think that's on the song Blind Faith, if I remember correctly. It's been a while, but well, yeah, I'll that, have Mike fact check that by the end of the show and get back to you. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. But listen, crazy, it, crazy. It, it may be cold as hell up here in Rochester, but you know we're a bunch of badass uh, meddlers up here. And, Obviously. Oh yeah, you know your boys, Metallica came here to do Kill 'Em All. Uh, Anthrax yeah. did some recording up here. Carl Kennedy and the Rods, they spent time up here. And Love the Rods. Yeah, yeah. We have a rich history of metal. We we saw all those tours, um, that Merciful Fate, King Diamond, Megadeth, one, yeah. all that shit. Exciter. I was like 14 years old and went to the Violence at Force. Tour. Yeah, I mean, that's what's crazy. It's, it's, you're right. When you bring up Rochester, back in the day, a lot of shit went down there. I don't know what happened over the years, but you guys could be cited as kind of the birth, if you think about it, for like the bands that went out there recorded those early thrash metal records. Oh, I mean, between yeah. between that and even Los Angeles, because we had track records. That's where all the early records were done out here. People don't realize that place was small. It was We recorded the track records. Everybody troubled fucking slayer everybody recorded at this place tiny studio and then what's even crazier about it it was off a street called melrose which is a very popular street here but the parking was so shitty that you had to park unload your shit and then take your car out of the driveway because the driveway was right after right off of melrose where cars were just speeding by so you had to actually have a person out in the road to help you back your car up and get out of the studio so you could go park your car. But that's how we loaded into that studio. And and the first two high ratch records we recorded there, along with like Hind the Chapel, I think Shona Mercy was done at track records, a lot of the Dark Angel demos, tons of shit. Savage Grace, Armored Saint. It's just unbelievable what was done at that studio. But Rochester, New York definitely is on the map as far as I'm concerned. I be, I think you have to be kind of a a, a information badass to know that though because over the years i think people have forgotten about that but no yeah you're, not, you're, not here 
Yeah, you're definitely right about Rochester, though, man. It's It should definitely be noted for that, for sure. A couple questions. You touched on the early days with Metal Blade, uh, the artwork on some of the early albums. How'd you, yeah. Uh, yeah, how'd you get uh, hooked up with uh, Pusshead? Is there a story behind that? And besides California, what kind of touring did you do? Did, did you make it to Rochester? How do you know about us being cold? Well, I appreciate, first off, that you guys are asking some really good questions. So that's, I, I haven't fallen asleep yet. And I haven't done an interview in a long, long time. Not that I haven't been offered them. I just don't do them as much as I used to, just because I think if you're going to talk, you should have something to talk about. Instead of just doing an interview for the fuck of it, you know. But this this was one another thing where my wife was like, you should talk with these guys. These guys sound like they're really awesome and they've been staying on your ass to do it. So I appreciate that. <laughs> oh, of course, but, of course. But get, get me settled back to the question again. I kind of got off subject there because I was just trying to let you know. I Pusshead. How'd you get involved okay, with Pusshead? So the early records were always in the beginning. It was the record label. But the thing with Pusshead, he was involved with us earlier than even when we got with Metal Blade because he knew about this label that didn't even really have a name yet. But it was it was, it was was actually um, out of England. What's that label called that did all the Napalm Death stuff? Mm-hmm. Uh, Neat Records? Close. It's a little bit later, though. I'm thinking of uh, Napalm Death's first record was on. There's a whole bunch of them. I know what you're talking this, about. I, I should be able to nail this. This is horrible. I feel like an idiot for not being able to say it. But um, anyways, so there was uh, the beginning of this label. They didn't even have a name yet. And they were doing a compilation called The Angelic and Scrape Addict. It's a flexi disc. And, and you don't even hear about flexi disc anymore. But uh so we were doing this flexi disc and there was a bunch of punk and hardcore crossover bands from the UK. It was basically us, a band called Concrete Socks, another band I believe called Sacrilege. It's been so many years, I'd have to actually pull the record. But anyway, so the the guy's name was Digby. That that actually helps us a lot too. Is the owner of the label's name was Digby. And there, it's a huge label now. I can't believe I'm forgetting the name of it. But I'll, I'll, I'll fact check it later. But anyways, so Pusshead was responsible for kind of getting that together because he knew these guys in England. He knew about us and he was really interested in us because he was also working with Corrosion and Conformity at the same time and a few other bands like the Misfits and uh, Seven Seconds, something like that. But anyway, so he hooked us up with these English guys and they were really excited to do this record and then we did that first and then Puss had you know, signed on to do the artwork with Metal Blade. Metal Blade actually set up the deal, but we were already in contact with him. And we liked him because we had seen the Misfit shit he'd done already. We were like, this guy's a no-brainer, you know? And then, so when he when he did the, the artwork for Raging Violence, he did that at the same time that he did the animosity cover for um, COC, for Corrosion and Conformity. He was doing both covers at the same time. I remember going to his house in, in uh, San Francisco and him showing me the covers and just being like, wow. And, but also what he did when he got to our cover, the Raging Violence cover, which a lot of people don't realize, it's actually Humpty Dumpty being executed. A lot of people don't know that, which is some bizarre, crazy shit. But when he came up with the idea for that, he wanted to, he was talking to me about it. He's like, I really don't want you guys' record to be like any other metal band. And I'm like, well, that's cool and all, but we, you know, it's when you do these covers, it's really important to still come across with something that's powerful. 
Well, when I finally saw it, I, I did like it. But the thing was, his thing was, he really wanted to avoid making us look like a typical metal band. So that's that's another really great question to ask me because a lot of people don't they don't get it. They some people don't understand that that was really kind of a statement more on Pusshead than even us. It was like he didn't want us just to be another typical metal band because he never he felt like we never really were, which he was actually right. So it kind of is a very interesting thing about that cover when you really stare at it and look at it, you know. But that was Pusshead on that one. And by the time we got to the second record, it was actually kind of bizarre. A lot of people don't know the history between us and the Misfits, but another artist that worked with the Misfits was Mad Mark Root, and he did our second cover. And working with both artists, both artists was such a different thing because they were both different kinds of artists. Like Pusshead was more kind of private where he would take you to his house and it was pretty secretive to show you the artwork. And Mad Mark Group is more of a wild man, like where you got to his house and you were actually a little scared because he was such a badass. So I worked with two different dudes where I was personally alone with them, and they were very interesting experiences, you know? What about the touring? Um, again, did, did you ever make it to Rochester? You ever play over here? Actually, we did years ago, but not like in the early days. We went probably 10 or 15 maybe even yeah somewhere between 10 and 15 years ago we played up there it was fucking great but i will tell you that's when i got first damn notice of how cold it was we went through rochester in the winter which was gnarly like if you're from california and you ain't never felt that kind of cold before holy shit like you gotta be a badass to live up there the only guys i know that know colder than that they're either in norway or they're from canada Oh, dude, it's not that cold, man. To you. <laughs> no, but like Norway and Canada, you know. I well, that's, where... in, that's next level. But I'm just saying, like, that's the only guys I know colder. Like, seriously, for us, being there in winter was like being in hell. I mean, you got to remember, we're in, we're like, it's like taking a, a lizard from the desert and putting it in Rochester. Yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. It's like, and if you take us, and now where are you, SoCal? Yeah, dude, I'm in sunny California. Come out here in summer and see if you can handle it. Well, yeah, I know. It's like, you know, going to Florida. (laughs) Yeah. I got you. I got you, man. Yeah. But touring-wise, we got there, and it was one of the best shows of the tour. We did a little East Coast tour. It wasn't a big run, but we went up there, and it was also before things got like they are now. Like now, the it's amazing how things can change in, you know, five, ten years. Like we've gradually always grown as a band. But we're probably more popular now than we ever have been, which is bizarre to me. But it just things happen that way, you know. You, you you take things as they come, and for us over the years, even during the pandemic, the the amount of people writing to us, probably because they need music more than ever, is unbelievable. You know, what's really unbelievable is some of the stats we get from listeners for our our outlets and a lot That's of awesome. yeah and a lot of it's overseas and you briefly touched on the fact that what goes on over in Chile and you know in Europe yeah. it's just we had metal mike from the Helford band he played guitar in Helford yeah he's good good guy yeah yeah Been before. he told us the story this was real funny when the Helford band played rock in Rio back in the day whenever that was that huge yeah but the the funny part of the story was uh the crowds were mobbing them and it was just like he in in his accent he was saying it felt like we are the beatles or something and it was really yeah but then as it turned out the crowds that were surrounding them 
mistaken them for some like um, some boy band. But wow, <laughs> but that's but, amazing. But the point was, you know, just the you know thousands and thousands of people that are there, and they take their metal seriously. And yeah, so. they really do. Like in the states, it's I mean, it's great here. You have to. It's a whole nother thing, even just touring through Europe or going to South America. I mean, we've gone to places that most bands, we played, we played Colombia actually before fucking Iron Maiden, which is amazing. And Colombia is insane. Like seriously, it's like where you're afraid that your van's going to get tipped over by the fans, that kind of shit. It's unbelievable down there. We've done probably five shows over the years in Colombia alone. And it's unbelievable. It's just phenomenal. And then South America is another thing, but Europe's, Europe, Europe is like so professional. I mean, even the smaller gigs from venue to venue and how the, everything's handled and they feed you well and, you know, load in time, everything's on professional. It's just, just unbelievable. So it's kind of sad that the States isn't as badass when it comes to heavy metal and, and thrash metal and all that, but it's okay because there still are a lot of great fans in the United States. It's just not as mania like when you go to the other countries she's so proud to be a metalhead because you can't believe what you're seeing like thousands of kids you know we did we did one show in columbia twenty thousand. you know no problem you know so so to so to go from like you know 600 kids to twenty thousands insane especially when you hear the how loud they are you know but but it's all good i mean we take each gig the same like you know whether we're playing in a 300 seater venue in, in france or playing in front of 20,000 people in Colombia, it's you just got to go out there and give your best, and the fans always make it so much worth it because you meet them, especially after the shows, and it's it's pretty uh, emotional. Like, we, we toured through so many countries. There's been countries where we've gone back and people have died, and people have come to tell us that, you know, we were like, they buried them with our records in their, ca- their coffins and shit, you know? Like, if that doesn't change who has a musician then you are a cold-blooded person, you know what I mean? Like, it moves us, and we, that's one of the reasons, like I said, we still do this and are still working to, to put out good music because we care so much about the people that care about the legacy of the band. What kind of advice would you give that uh, your, yourself as a youngster that you know today? I know that my young self would still think I was an idiot by trying to talk to me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but I would tell me, myself just to look around a lot more and, and kind of take it in a little bit more like slow down just a hair like you can still go a hundred thousand miles but really open your eyes because there's some so much amazing shit like the stuff that we got to see i mean I, I won't take it back because i still saw it but i would probably take go a little slower to stare at shit like we were at a a tomb in mexico city that they opened up just for us to see like shit like that you know so I would say take a little more time. Um, you know, when you're in certain countries, try some of the food a little bit more. Don't be so inhibited by being from California where we have the best Californianized Mexican food and hamburgers and shit. When you're in other countries, try that food. Try Japanese food, you know, whatever. Because we've, we've gotten to go to some amazing places. We've been to Japan like five times. That's nuts, you know. So you should you should take every moment a little bit, milk it. Not super long, but just where you really, really remember every little detail because you, you're never going to get those moments again, and, and you should take every day like that. Like every day, look at everything around you as much as you can before you, you know you have to do other shit. 
you know, the uh, cliche, stop and smell the roses. I don't think we, uh, you know, when we're t- in our 20s, we don't really understand what the hell some old guy's trying to tell us. You know, we, we got to yeah. find, find some kind of new way to say that. So, you know, throughout your years playing with so many different, you know, artists and as a singer, how do you approach writing songs with other musicians? That's awesome. I just like to really get into the process because, for one, creating music, it's awesome. And you should be really grateful if you're able to do that and people even want to hear your shit. Like, that's where I think musicians get too too much of an ego. You should be grateful that anybody's waiting to hear your shit. So make some good shit. So basically, I really get into the process. I usually really keep it simple, and that's where it's been the best. Is uh, I like to write in my living room with my guitar player. That's how we start the process. He comes over, we sit down, we drink some beer old school as shit, maybe make some food and we just riff out and he'll come in with a small lamp in the living room, set it right up by the fireplace and start playing for me. And we have a, a good zoom recorder and my wife will chime in once in a while. Cause she's badass, So she'll go, that's weak. <laughs> you know? So it's a good process. It's really old school. Like it's the way musicians used to write. We just get, you know, sit in front on, on the coffee table and then we will once in a while just for uh, insp- inspiration. Believe it or not, there's a song called Judas in the, the movie uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. A lot of people don't know about this song, but that's been a pretty inspirational song. If you ever get a chance, you should check it out. I will, absolutely. So yeah, it's, it's, it's totally metal. Uh, it would be like if Deep Purple and, and Sabbath and... I don't know, Led Zeppelin got together and made their heaviest work. It's really amazing. But, you know, once in a while we'll reach to listen to something that's creative. Like, our biggest thing is, yeah, you have your formula, but you still need to be creative with your formula and try to add stuff to it. I will admit I've been doubling harmonies and stuff like that. I think that's important. But it's really just, you know, getting that whole blueprint down basically a basic structure of a main riff a bridge and a chorus and then you go from there you know you can have your intro we we like to work on intros and outros of the songs breakdown sections i mean you got to go back to your handbook but you also should try to be more creative and think about moods i mean each song especially once you start creating records if there it's if it's a record that's going to be 30 or 45 minutes you want to create something that takes people on a roller coaster ride, not just the same tempo or the same shit, you know, seven songs or eight songs of the same crap. Not that you can't do that, but if you're going to do it, it better be good shit. Right on, right on. So those are some good do's. Any, uh, any don'ts that you would pass on to new singers and new musicians? Like, uh, you don't, you, you know, stay in your shoes. You don't want to do that. I, what main thing I would tell them is be you. Like, it's it's good to have influences. There's nothing wrong with that, especially if they're damn good influences. But whatever you create, try to be you. If you sing a certain way, like, uh, this is kind of an interesting take on it. Uh, me and James go really far back. Like, before Metallica was called Metallica, they were called a few names. It was They were in Obsession because they loved UFO, Phantom, what was it, Phantom something. But they had a few different names. Leather Charm was another name they had. But... James, that a lot of people don't realize, as a singer in the beginning, he was really incredible, especially if you listen to Kill 'Em All, because he had his own thing. And that's what I think a lot of vocalists don't think about. Sometimes I get that you, there's influences or there's something that's really popular, 
But if you look back through even your own record collection, you'll notice the singers that have their own thing more than anybody else. So what I always just try to tell any young musicians that I meet, be you and, and let that be your, your kind of your inspiration and muses being yourself. Good advice. Good advice. So let's kind of try to move the uh, clocks forward and talk about Hyrax now. And I just got to say thank you for what you get, what you're doing, you know, and there must, there's a time probably from 95 to 2010 for myself that, you know, life got busy. You know, I wasn't listening to metal. I was checking out other stuff. One day I'm like, all right, Hey, how's my band Hyrax doing? And I load up El Diablo Negro and I just, I just shit, man. I was like, it's gone. This is what I fucking love. Hell yeah. Let me ask you, you know, you went on hiatus too in in the nineties. Uh, totally. What did you do, and and what did you learn from that? That was the best thing I could have done, man. Like the thing about music is, if you don't find ways to either be inspired or learn, you're dead. You know. So I actually probably needed to take time off because what I ended up doing, I still was involved in music. I just wasn't playing as a you know front man. I was actually either working at record labels or working even in record stores, which was the best actually, because I got to see the interaction between not just record fans, but people from bands coming in trying to sell their own stuff and promote their bands. So I did that for like at least 10 years. Um, So that whole time I was basically learning and then appreciating music again, because I was kind of burnt coming out of Hyrax because we were really young. I mean, 21 20 years old with a young band that doesn't know what the hell they're doing except for they can play, but they don't know anything about the business. So, I mean, if I, that's another thing I try to tell musicians, you know, there's two ways to be a musician. You can either have your mommy and daddy do everything or you learn it yourself. I had to learn it myself. I don't mind if people have stage parents, but it's better for the musicians to do all of that shit themselves because they're going to have to learn it sooner or later themselves anyway. So uh, I, I got the best hands-on experience by not just working in stores, but once I got back into doing music again, I applied everything that I had learned before that too was, you know, tape trading and being able to send out mail at volumes to, and getting the, the demos to the right people. So once I got back in the Hyrax when we did El Diablo, uh, which was amazing because we did that on a chicken coop for $20. We gave the guy 20 bucks so he could get beer that the engineer we go, here, get yourself food and beer, and let's just bang out three songs, and that's what we did. But 
you know, he, I learned from that because we sold 5,000 of those right away, which was ridiculous. I was like, what? We did three songs for 20 bucks and sold 5,000 records. I guess I can do this, you know, like, I guess I can do this. And I basically, my whole thing has always been putting money back into music. Like, yeah, you got to survive, but you can't survive if you don't put money back into repressing the records and getting them out to the distributors. And, you know, we got really lucky because a band called Cannibal Corpse were in town and they were playing this fucking show for Metal Blade. It was like a Metal Blade anniversary party with like Armored Saint and a bunch of bands. So, Another band called The Haunted were like, hey, can you come out and and hang out? And I was like, fuck, I'm not even doing music really at this point. I mean, we had just started doing music again, but I didn't realize that there were people that cared so much. So I went to the show and people were fucking freaking out. I was like, I guess I've been away too long. So at that show, Century Media was there and they asked me, we've been looking for you. We don't know how to contact you. So you go, well, yeah, I'm around. We want to buy a bunch of records. I had a bunch of records in the trunk, and they bought them and sold them all. That's so that's cool. kind. Of, that's kind of how I got back into it. As just a band that was that cared about us, Cannibal Corpse, and and another band called The Haunted asked us to come out. And at that same show, we got asked to go over to Germany. So it was kind of weird that I showed up when I really normally probably wouldn't have. But it's always been like where the fan base and the the musicians that grew up on our shit kind of have told people about us and, and the, the name of the band just kept moving on down the line. And that's what happened with El Diablo. We did that for 20 bucks. Uh, my wife pressed up, like she actually handmade 5,000 copies of that and sold every single word of it. That's awesome, man. That's um, well, any business or passion, the more you put into it, the more you're going to get out of it. Uh, True. We're, we're going to turn the t- corner on on this. I know you got to get going. Um, it's all be- good. But before I do, uh, with the passing of Eddie Van Halen, that's there, huge. Ah, uh, it's terrible. You know, it's my yeah. last name's Verno, and I wanted to name my firstborn Eddie Van Verno. You know, the, that's right. You know, I the X, X wouldn't go for it. But the dynamics of Alex and Eddie is, you know, they're brothers. It's huge. You, huge. You have a set of uh. Uh, siblings in your band what's the dynamics with steven lance is that's an excellent fucking question and i and since we're getting close to ending here this might be the one to do it on because this is a very good question well firsthand i will tell you that they know a language that nobody else knows like it's i'm not even fucking saying that like it's fucking bizarre like to watch like to watch brothers communicate that like seriously we're tight brothers like out of the womb like fucking same haircuts together you know what i mean like they went to the barbershop together. They got into rock and roll together. The record that made those kids musicians is Dirty Deeds, the original cover with Bon Scott's big forearm on it. That record is like Lance's favorite record. And his brother said, because he saw that record, he wanted to play bass. Like that's so like the whole thing about the band, which is a beautiful thing is it's a real big family thing. And, more than that, there's like a language that's spoken between us that's bizarre, but those two, especially since they're brothers, it's a bond you can't break. Like, seriously, those fuckers will die for each other for any reason. Like, it's, they're the most hardcore brothers you've ever seen. Like, they will back up each other's shit, even if the other one's wrong. I'm not kidding you. That Well, th- that's awesome because, um, you know, blood is thicker than water. You ain't kidding, but in their their case, it's mud. So, like, they're 
language is really unbelievable. Uh, over the years, I've gotten to learn it because you, when you're writing songs together, you kind of get it. Like Lance, this is a really personal but awesome thing to tell you that Lance counts differently than I do. So he's like speedster. So he counts what I would count eight. He counts it as four. So I've had to learn that language with him, just that, you know I mean? Those are the kind of things with musicians that people don't think about, like certain guys in bands don't count the same way. So you got to kind of figure out, oh, he's he's saying what I'm saying and only in half. I'm saying double. He's always saying half of that. That's kind of how we write. Like I've had to get to learn and understand him over the years, which is perfect now. But in the beginning, I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? But it's like not really anything wrong with him. It's just that you have to learn each other's language. So working with them, brothers is amazing. I, and, and the thing is, like, I can relate to the Van Halen thing even more now, even though I was always a huge fan growing up. That's the first major band I saw live in 78. I saw him opening for a fucking, it was Boston, Black Sabbath, Van Halen, and Sammy Hagar as the opening act when he was the Red Rocker. What was so it, Van that, ha- that Cal Jam? What was that? That Anaheim? I think show? it might have been. The, it might. Have, I saw him at Anaheim, but it might have been for the same kind of a tour. Because I know that tour did a bunch of shit where they didn't just do work with Sabbath and Van Halen. They jumped on other things, but they'd make them in the festival. So, yeah. but when I saw him, it was Anaheim Stadium, and it was insane. But that brotherhood thing is a huge thing. Like, it's not an understatement when people say working with brothers is. And I can see, like, even when you look at Van Halen over the years, all the shit that went down, those two were like, fuck everybody, we're still together. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, yeah, that, they were best friend. friends. They yeah, was... you, can't, you can't break that. And it's a good thing, though. It's just, um, I think it's extra power, though. Like, all the bands you look at, like, if you look at ACDC, whenever there's brothers involved, there's some supernatural shit going on there. So let me, <laughs> look, let me just say that. It's supernatural shit working with two brothers. That, that's, that's how I'll close that. It's crazy. Many have tried, most have failed, only a few survived. This is the Mount Rushmore of Metal. We have a staple show segment we call Mount Rushmore of Metal, where we ask a question. The question to Katon of Hyrax is, if you had a time machine, what four bands would you go back to and see? Wow, that's a that that's an excellent question. For where I come from, we, we say this is our slang. That's a fucked question because it's such a good question. How do you answer that? Um, there's a few, but I guess I'll, can I say four? Four bands I would go that, that's all, Yeah, four. Oh man, I'd probably go see Metallica again with Cliff. That'd be one of them. That's not the biggest one, but that's huge. Like. I saw them do the warm-up show before they played Day, Day on the Green. They played at this small club, and they that was their warm-up show for the Day on the Green. I wasn't at the Day on the Green because I felt like, fuck, I'd seen, I got lucky I saw the warm-up show. So that, that would be one of the bands because Cliff was really amazing to watch. Obviously, because, you know, this goes back to my childhood, but Hendrix would be in there. Um, I'd probably want to see Randy Rhodes again because I saw him on the first tour. Fucking unbelievable and uh the last one is such a tough question i guess i'll go for metal would probably be to see the original slayer lineup together again would probably be great because i saw them on the uh haunting the chapel tour i mean i'd seen them even before that i saw them before the first album came out but by the time they got to the haunting the chapel tour they were fucking insane 
I have I have a question, and it just popped into my head. Seeing that you keep telling stories about, you know, with these bands, any of these guys, and don't take this the wrong way. Can you yeah. can you hang this? Can you end this interview and pick up your phone and call any of these people? Probably Dave Lombardo, out of all of them, because or Dave Mustaine. Yeah, those guys I could. I don't. You know what's funny? I don't do any of that shit, and it's. Um, I was saving this for my book, but I'll, I'll be real honest with you. I always felt this is something that's a big point in the book that I'm working on, but a lot of the bands that I loved and I still love them. I just love them from a distance. I don't bother because I felt that after the years of me doing this music, I had realized who my real friends were over the years, because when you have a big show, that's when you learn who your real friends are. And a lot of people will come out of the woodworks and start calling you when you have a really big show. And uh, I always really appreciated the friends that would just show up and not do that to me because guest list, it's insane. You know what I mean? Like it's and how do you choose, you know? And then also a real friend will come out and spend a few bucks to come see him, not do that to you and still go out with you and have a beer at the pub. You know what I mean? Like I just, with Metallica, we were really tight and, I went to see them one night at this New Year's Eve show. It was a big New Year's Eve show in, in the Bay Area, but they weren't even that big yet. It was like before Master of Puppets. And, uh, but it was still big. It was 3,000 people. But I remember the guest list was like 300 people when that, when I said, yeah, I'm on James's guest list. And I felt bad. I'm like, I'm one of the 300 on this guest list. And he's my friend. I don't think I should call him for this kind of shit. So that was like the last time I talked to James. And he never knew why I stopped talking to him, but it's just because I felt a burden because I'm also a musician. And I know how it kind of feels that people just bothering you only when you're playing shows. I think they should call you when you're maybe just sitting in the house, you know, during COVID to say hello. But yeah, I don't, a lot of those guys I could call, I just haven't. And uh, it's just been the way I kind of do my life, but and I and I I still love them, but I just I think as a real good friend, sometimes you you know not that they would have even taken it that way. I don't think James would have ever taken it that way. I mean, the dude actually helped me up his stairs one time, carried me up his stairs to his apartment because we had played in the Barry and I got kind of hurt at one of our gigs. Mm-hmm. And the next day, he's I mean that's how good of a person James is. No matter how I feel about their newer music, I still friendship wise that guy is gold. He's a good good human. But I just, I haven't, I probably could even call him. I mean, it's funny because we have a mutual friend over the years that always tries to get us back in touch, and I just kind of leave it alone. The last time I saw Hetfield, they played the the Forum in Los Angeles on this, I guess it was called the Snake Pit Tour or whatever. Yeah, it's like and, 30 years ago, bro. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they, they called my house at 2 in the morning because they were in the backstage area, and they were bothering me to come down, so I drove down there after the show was over. And I remember walking through the backstage of the forum going, wow, I had no idea this place was this fucking big. Yeah. You know, I'm just saying, though, I just I kind of live a different in a different world, I guess. I just think if you're a real good friend, sometimes when it comes to that stuff, I don't want to be calling James every time he comes into town to play a show. You know, yeah. it's just, just not my style. Hyrax.org is the website, and you can follow Kadon and Twitter at, yeah. at Hyrax Official. Yeah, Twitter or Facebook, Instagram, all that stuff are easy to find. Um, I would also say if people are looking to really, you know, for the best source, really, is there's a site called Hyrax Big Cartel. Like, if you punch, punch in Big Cartel Hyrax, you'll find us. 
And, uh, yeah, man, we're just trying to do the right thing. We're a real modest band down the earth. We just play heavy metal, thrash metal, whatever you want to call it, crossover. And we're a people's band, and we always will be. That's just our. That's just how we choose to live. So I'm just being real with you guys, and I'll keep being that way till the day I fucking die. Hey, Caden, thanks so much for uh, spending time with us tonight, man. It was really great getting to know you. And uh, hey, my wife Beth would uh, she would she she would kick my ass if I didn't ask this question because all week past couple of weeks I've been jamming high racks and she's like, you know, now my wife is more of like a Bonnie Raitt singer type gal, not like a Doro, not like a Doro Pesh, if you know what I mean. So I hear you. It's all good. Tell her. I think that's awesome. She, she heard you singing and she's like, God, his voice is great. He should be singing the classics. So well, t- tell her there's a guy that I grew up on called Sam Cook. He was kind of one of my biggest influences. <laughs> Beautiful, kid, so bro. That's awesome. That, that's kind of where it comes from. I think she'll she'll understand that. If she knows who Bonnie Reed is, she'll know who Sam Cook is. Totally, Kate. Well, hey, man, you have a great evening, and I really appreciate you spending time with us, brother. I'm going to check out of here. All right, man. Hey, much respect to all you guys, and uh, have a good evening or a good night. Thanks, buddy. All right, cheers. Bye-bye. There you have Caton from Hyrax. Great band, mid-'80s. They were there at the beginning. You heard it all, folks. I want to thank Mike, the producer, for joining us today. He did a lot of the research on this, and this was a uh, bucket list interview for him, and I'm glad we could put it together. Metal Forever Mark, he'll be back in the saddle in the next couple weeks. He's out putting together some content for later episodes. This is the Vernomatic Metal Mayhem ROC. As always, I thank you for listening. We'll be back next Thursday. End of the year shows coming up. Exciting things for the beginning of the year. Remember, the Metal Mayhem ROC radio show is debuting in early January on thatmetalstation.com. Have a great holiday season, folks. Stay safe and always remember, keep it heavy. Metal for Life. Thanks for listening to Metal Mayhem ROC. Check out our websites at MetalMayhemROC.com and MetalForever.com for information on upcoming concerts, podcasts, archives, and all sorts of info. Please like, follow, and share with everyone, even your non-metal friends. Catch us next time on WLFE-DB Radio. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.